on Sunday, they butcher the cows. Well, they spend all week breaking them down, but Sundays, that's when they die. I never understood why they picked Sunday. Maybe some people think they'll be closer to God, the animals, or them. You can hear the noise for miles. It sounds like screaming. I don't think God would want to be anywhere near that. At first it's calm, the same as any other day. But once the fear hits, it travels through the herd like a virus, quick and deadly. A lot of us hate Sundays, but some people love them. They drink in the fear and violence like a single malt scotch. It makes them feel powerful. In this way, maybe they are closer to God. Or at least that's what they think. You know how they found them, don't you? Butchered. His skin was taken off in one clean sheet and left on a hook, like a jacket on a windy day. They found his head simmering on the stove. The rest of him laid out like a banquet on the good china with vegetables and neatly placed silver. You can't come back from seeing something like that. The cops, they were never the same after the trial. But for the most part, they can hold a conversation okay now. Every so often though, they get that far away look in their eyes and you know where they went. Their thoughts take them back. Anything can do it. The soft clink of good china, dark floor length curtains. Sunday. I can't say that nothing bad ever happens here. We live hard, people fight, they lie, they cheat, they steal. Hell, I've seen fights get out of hand. Sometimes they even kill, but not like that. We're hardworking people. Nothing was handed to us in this life. No one gives a single thought to this town and suddenly we're the five o'clock story on everyone's TV. That's why you're here, isn't it? You wanna know what happened in that house. You say that it's unimaginable for any man to commit such a heinous crime. And yet, here we are. But you're right, you know. No man could ever do something like that. Because it wasn't a man. It was a woman. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. good response. Thanks. <laughs> hey, Leslie. Hey, Holly. Hey, Fiends. I'm not going to mince words, pun unintended, but this case is gross. Exciting. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know when we would get to this case. Like, I knew we would eventually cover it, but I didn't, I didn't really have super specific plans for it. But I felt that if we had explored the lengths of depravity in men, we needed to be even-handed and show that the same impulses sometimes do exist in women. 
And Catherine Knight. Sometimes. Not as often. And you're right there. (laughs) And Catherine Knight is as bad as they come. If we're going to make an an effort to understand female victims, we have to take a look at female perpetrators as well. A well-rounded approach is key to a successful podcast. I feel smarter already. You look smarter. Thank you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And any successful skincare routine is the same way. Oh, for sure. Right, right, right. You know about skincare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which is why I stick with a steady regimen of Shore Soaps products. Great. I'm just going to plug you every week. Yes. It's great. I I do it in the morning and before bed. And then I also take in a nice large dose of validation administered directly from my eye holes into my soul. It's so nice. We just got a huge tub of validation into the warehouse. Wow. So every Shore Soaps product has validation. God, you're lucky. That's why I use my lavender mint lotion and serum. Oh, yeah. I can see it. You're glowing. I'm trying so hard. But also that validation, you guys. <laughs> um, and how do I how do I obtain this validation? Because you just got it at Shore Soap, so it's probably not in my stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Ratings and reviews, of course. Fantastic. And you guys can help us with that. That's mm-hmm. right. If you have a spare minute, please hop on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really does make all of the difference when it comes to being seen. For sure. And I should be clear, the tub of validation that I got came directly from We Would Be Dead reviews and Patreon. Yeah, I just, every week I open the lid Mm -hmm. and I go online and I look at the reviews and and our Patreon account and I'm like, fill. I love it. And it's great. And it just goes from the computer into, and then I close the lid Yeah, and then we use it in the products that we- So you're like just helping so many people with reviews, you guys. Yeah, it's, it's really helpful. I mean, you're helping the business. It's- it's helping great. our business too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all it's all helping. Exactly. <laughs> and plus you get to see every week how I'm gonna segue you giving us reviews and <laughs> yes. <laughs> Guys, I'm trying to make it fun so you don't just skip past the opening every time. Sup- support a small business and write a review. Yes, please. We would be dead. <laughs> But it really does make difference for us. Um, a lot more people see us the more you leave ratings and reviews. And we want that to happen because then we'll be bigger and we can do more. Yes. And if you'd like to go one step further and be part of the engine that keeps We Would Be Dead going, you can hop on over to Patreon, where for just a little monthly donation, you will gain access to our extra monthly mini-sode, our patrons-only monthly podcast, 30-minute horror movies, exclusive events like our patrons-only green room that occurs an hour before our monthly live campfire stories, this month, we're going to bring John back again because we just love him so much. And we're talking about Irish folklore, which means banshees and fairies and leprechauns. Oh, my. Oh, my. Patrons get to hang out an hour before while we chat and get ready and just have a really awesome, fun time. Last time, we, like, took a BuzzFeed quiz. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> Patrons also get discounts to our merch store and a little gift from us, an on-air toast dedicated just to you and more. I don't know what the more is. I think I might have covered it all. But you know what? full of surprises. It's good for me. Yeah. Lastly, if that all seems to be a little bit too much for you, you can simply share our content to your social media feeds. Then your friends can become fiends and we can all hang out together. I love that. Isn't that the best? I'm so excited. We're fun and you're fun. Tell your friends they should be fun too. I think, uh, I think that's all of my business. Leslie, do you have any business? Oh gosh. Uh, no. Merchandise? Mm, yeah. Okay. So... (laughs) We sure. do have that new merchandise that we, we do. We do. So we have new uh, toast T-shirts mm-hmm. in, which are great. Uh, we did a pre-order for those, so but we do have a couple extras. 
Uh, we're going to be getting some new hoodies in as Ooh. well. So I'm going to get an order up for that, and we might be ordering those like in another month. Perfect. So if you want merchandise, now is the time to make that decision. We do, yeah. And I just updated the shirts and tanks and stuff as well. So Even better. You did have something. I, yeah. Kind thank of. You. Thank you for reminding me. I pulled it right out of you. <laughs> it was there. It was there all along. <laughs> all right, then. If that's all taken care of, on with the show. Welcome to our first Australian case. <gasps> oh. I know. I was trying to think, like, did we cover Australia before? And I really don't think we have. I don't think we did. So? Didn't. Carl Tanzler. He, like, briefly went there. Yeah. But he's not from there. Right. <laughs> but that was our, like, little touch. It was, yeah, we just kind of stepped in Australia yeah. for a second. But nice. so many crazy things happened in Australia <laughs> that I'm shocked it has taken us this long to cover a full case yeah. there. This week takes us to the very small town of Aberdeen, which is located in the upper Hunter region of New South Wales. That's for our Aussie listeners and the people who visit our Aussie listeners. <laughs> According to the 2016 census, there were just 1,894 people living in Aberdeen, which that's a very small town. 6.7% of these people were Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And if I pronounce that wrong, I'm super sorry. Australia, please correct me. And um, tell me you're listening, because I'd love to hear that we have listeners in Australia. I think we do. I think we have a couple. We do. Yeah. Nice. Also, 86.7% of the total population of Aberdeen are people that were born in Australia. So they don't get a lot of imports. It's the kind of small town that residents are inclined to stay in forever. So basically, you're born there, you live there, you die there. Okay. Which is not a bad thing. I'm not judging that. Some people very happily make a home and don't yeah. ever want to leave. One reason why such an existence, like staying in the same place forever, would be possible for that long of a time in such a remote location was the abattoirs that they have there. Aberdeen was known for its abattoir. And if you lived there, most likely most of your relatives worked there at some point. What is an abattoir? Well, it's a nice fancy word for a slaughterhouse. Oh. More specifically, the kind of slaughterhouse that processes animals for food. So this isn't like the glue factory. It's like they make steaks. This one was cattle specific. So it's a grim business, yes, but also a very successful one. And for a long while, it kept Aberdeen on the map. It also kept the people who lived there gainfully employed for decades. So it was very good for the town's economy and the people who lived there in general. I believe the last one shut down like right after 2000. They don't have it anymore. But for a while, uh, and for a while I mean like a century, it was a big deal. Aberdeen has been called, quote, a rough place. Many people there were born in abusive families, brought up in them, and then continued the tradition with families of their own. Alcoholism ran rampant and knockdown, drag out fistfights in the street were not uncommon. Everyone knew everyone else's business, and all roads lead to and from the abattoir, so to speak. And so we will start our story there. At the town's lifeblood, the Aberdeen Meatworks. Oh, that's a great name. New York's it all. hottest club <laughs> is the Aberdeen Meatworks. <laughs> <laughs> I kept thinking that while I was writing yeah, it. I was like, like, no, don't make Stefan jokes. <laughs> I did anyway. It is 1940, and the manager is a man named Jack Rowan. Jack fell in love with a girl named Barbara who worked on the floor, and the two fell in love and were married. Barbara and Jack were a very well-known and respected couple in Aberdeen. They had four boys together and seemed to be living a pretty charmed life. 
That is, until it was revealed that Barbara was having an affair with a mutual co-worker at the abattoir named Ken Knight. <gasps> Scandal. Wow. Barbara left her husband and her children to run off with Ken. Now, this just, like, rocked the area because this is at a time where a woman did not just up and leave her husband, let alone leave her husband with the kids. She didn't mm-hmm. take the kids. She just off and went. Well, it's not, easier that way. For sure, but <laughs> not a lot of single dads knocking about in, like, a thousand-person yeah. town in 1940. <laughs> uh, and Barbara and Jack were basically the first family of Aberdeen. The people of Aberdeen were so angered by Barbara's betrayal that they ran her out of town, forcing Barbara and Ken to relocate in the neighboring village of Mori. Barbara and Ken would go on to have four children of their own, so she just likes to have four children. Well, it's a good number for her. It's nice and round. Yeah. Yeah. She did it once. Do it again. Yeah. It's fine. Two of which, uh, these next four children, were twin girls named Joy and Catherine. Oh, she's a twin. I know. <gasps> oh, it's weird that she has a twin, right? Yeah. I know. I did not know that going in, and I knew this case pretty well. There's nearly no information in existence in the world about Joy. I mean, like, the internet doesn't have a picture of her, which is crazy. The okay. internet has pictures of everyone. Hmm. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I'm willing to bet that's exactly the way she wants it. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to respect her wishes and not try to dig any further into her life. Her name might not even be Joy. We don't know. It might just be how it's listed in... All True. the sources, because that's what they use. Just like Ted Bundy's first girlfriend is listed as a different name in, like, everything, because mm-hmm. that's how it appeared in a book. Okay. So, I mean, it could, I, I don't know. I didn't go any farther. Couldn't if I wanted to. So today we're talking about Catherine, though, who was born on October 24th, 1955. Leslie, why don't you tell us a little bit about 1955 to get us into the right frame of mind? Sure. What kind of world was Catherine born into? Well, in Australia, they still didn't have any televisions. Really? Yeah, not yet. Whoa! Isn't that crazy? Yes! Yeah. And she lived in, like, remote Australia. It's not yeah. like, oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. So, like, no mm-hmm. culture going in. Well, and it's interesting that you say remote Australia, too, because from some of the research I was doing, most Australians live in more, like, the cities, mm-hmm. and it's not as common for them to live remotely, even though, like, the part of me feels like they yeah, would. they're all it's, living in the outback. Yeah, it's just the way that, like, Australia is. There's a lot of c- cities, like Melbourne and yeah. um, Sydney and From what I've read, this is, I don't want to say super remote, because it is a town. It did have a yeah. thriving industry, but it's not a city. Yeah, basically. there's a lot of suburbs in the Yeah. In when there you look too. at pictures and you see, like, the homes where she lived and stuff, they do just look like kind of a rural suburb. Yeah. So they didn't get televisions until 1956. So, like, that first year of her life, she was just a baby. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> she did nothing. There was she nothing did baby to things. Do. There was no TV. Yeah, it was terrible. Um, and also in Australia, they take a lot of their culture from uh, America and Britain. So it's going to be very similar to American life at this point. Right. Um, so imagine the 1950s. America with, like, the, you know, the perfect little family unit. Right. And that was a lot of them. They had, like, their dream, their you know, the dream jobs and things like that that they were working towards. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have television, so that was really sad. So no Donna uh, Reed. <laughs> Got it, it wasn't until 1956, and even then only wealthier Aussies would have them for several more years. And oh, that truly wouldn't have been this town. There wasn't, a, there wasn't like, high-income people there. This was, like, a relatively— yeah, and there might have been, like, one family that got it. Uh, I know even in our 
history books, they would say, like, one family would get and they'd all, like, pay for it and they'd just go there and Aww. hang out. Um, they did have cinemas, though, so they would see movies. Mm-hmm. But at this time, it showed mostly American films geared towards teens. There were only, like, a handful of Australian films at the time. Uh, rock and roll just hit Australia as well, and this can be attributed to the theatrical release in 1955 of Blackboard Jungle, which Ooh. featured the hit single Rock Around the Clock Oh, by the American band Bill Haley and his Comets. Oh, because Haley's Comet. I see. Yeah. Or Halley's Comet, actually, but it doesn't matter. Oh, yeah. Probably Bill Halley. <laughs> Sorry. You never know. I just said that. And I was like, oh, wait. <laughs> that's a very common mistake, and he yeah. might have went by Haley because a lot of people say that, but it's actually Halley. Yeah. That's like, uh, what is it, Emily and Paris when Blech. it's supposed to be Emily and Perry. I will not. I will not. <laughs> I will not give them that one. I will pronounce Halley right because it's actually someone's name, but yeah. I will not. <laughs> Emily and Perry. But it makes sense. Get out of here. That's why they called her Emily. I know, because it rhymes. I get it, Netflix. Don't hate me. But it only, it rhymes to everyone else but Americans. (laughs) Who, like me, roundly refused. We're like, no, it's Emily in Paris. Yeah, I had no idea. Anyway, so during World War II, many, uh, like, sporting events had been, like, put on hold. So post-war Aussie's passion for sports was at, like, an all-time high at this point. The next year, in 1956, when they got TVs, they were also hosting the Olympics in Melbourne, and then the whole country could watch now. So that was really big, and they're still huge on sports. Like they, oh. they love watching them. They're very proud of. Way to go! Sport it up. Mm-hmm. Aussie kids were much like American kids. They had similar toys at the time. Their families were trying to live that dream, and once they had the TV, they found out that there were children's programming like Mickey Mouse Club, Rin Tin Tin. Andy Pandy, which was an Aussie show. Precious. And then probably Doctor Who, because they got TV from Britain, too. Probably that Dancing Mule, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Muffin or Muffin. Cupcake. What was her name? Oh. Was it Muffin the Mule? I, yeah, that would make sense. <laughs> I looked up pictures of her, and she is terrifying. Oh, man. There's a video, too. Did yeah. I send you the video? Yeah. It's upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what was going on in 1955. It's a nice time. Yeah. They weren't having a nice time over here, but it's a nice Aww. time in general. Yeah. So little Catherine's family was anything but normal at this point in time. I mean, normal is a construct, but you know what I mean. As it turned out, Ken Knight was a violent alcoholic who beat his wife and children relentlessly. And when Barbara wasn't getting the abuse from Ken, she was dishing it out just as hard, if not harder, to her children. Mm. It has been said that little Catherine always craved her mother's love and attention, but more often than not, when she went to seek it out, she was met with violence. Now, I mentioned that Aberdeen was a rough place. So this is probably not a terrible surprise to everybody, but I'll go a little farther. Ken was also insatiable and demanded sex be available from Barbara at all times at a moment's notice. And a moment isn't really enough time to conceal it from the children, even when it's forced and violent. So they bore witness to that. And let me just say, marital rape is real, friends. Yeah. Just because you're married doesn't mean you can bypass consent. You, You still have to, sex is still a consensual act. So now the children are subject to violence and exposed to graphic sexual acts and their mother's continual rape. And it would seem that things really couldn't get any worse than that. But because you're our listeners, you all know that of course they can. Things always get worse. When Barbara ran off with Ken and had a whole bunch more kids, she stopped working to tend to them and stay at home. It's not like she could have gone back to the abattoir anyway after she left with a coworker and the manager was her ex-husband. 
And with her violent and ever more isolated life, Barbara had few people to talk to, and so she would turn to her children with her troubles. Don't talk to your kids like they're your friends. They're not your friends. They're your kids. Yeah. Often she would talk about men and their sexual appetites. She would go on and on about the things men, and by men she means their father, wanted to do and how much she hated them for it, which is not great for kids to be listening to. Nope. Don't bitch to your kids, especially about their father raping you. Yeah. Yep. I mean, just get out of there in that situation. But I know it's not that simple or easy, especially at the time and in this place. So I'm not. I mean, she she left once before. She left a husband before. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. But she had with another man. She had someone to bounce right to. Oh, true. She wasn't going alone. Dr. Leah. Giarratano, a psychiatrist who studied Catherine, said that as early as at three or four years old, she began to disassociate to escape the violence, which means she'd just go another place in her head. And I don't mean like she split into multiple personalities because sometimes people can use that language for that. That's not what I'm talking about here. Just when something terrible would happen, she would simply go somewhere else in her head, which is actually an excellent coping mechanism and not uncommon for children who grow up in an extremely violent environment. But while it provides a little relief from the horror and daily violence and graphic sex acts and all the other stuff, it also blocks out a lot of things that children need to learn, or at least it did for Catherine, according to Dr. Giratano. She posits that Catherine's frequent associations prevented her from learning essential human qualities like empathy and love. So she was shutting out the bad, but also anything else. Okay. As a school child, Catherine was described as obedient and sweet but with an explosive temper. One minute she could be happily complying with school rules, a total model student getting along with her classmates, and the next minute she was screaming or hitting another child. One former teacher recalls an incident with her sister, Joy. They said that both girls were on the playground playing together, and they each wanted to turn on a bicycle. So I guess their playground had little bikes to play on and stuff. And Joy took the first turn, and when Catherine decided that Joy was taking too long, instead of, like, whining or yelling like most kids would, or even telling the teacher on her, she just went after her Joy with her fists hard. And the two fought in a grossly violent fashion for children of their age. They just had, like, a knockdown, dragout fist fight. Oh, man. Which is uncommon for, like, third graders. Right. Put them in the UFC. <laughs> Because of this unreliable behavior, Catherine had very few friends, which I'm not super surprised. You're probably scared of that kid. Yeah. Aside from her sister Joy, of course, who she had to be friends with because they were twins. While she could be more than confident with acts of violence, in all other aspects of her school life, Catherine was quite quiet and shy. So she didn't speak up, and when she did, it was with her fists. Mm. In addition to the violent outbursts, Catherine's great-grandmother was an indigenous Australian from the Maury area who had married an Irishman. Now, Barbara, Catherine's mother, was very proud of this fact and therefore identified herself as Aboriginal. But this was a family secret in the generations before Barbara as the area was subject to considerable racism at the time. Mm -hmm. And the family did not want to see their children suffer at the hands of this racism, so they kind of kept it quiet. However, Barbara didn't feel this way, as I said. So this became a source of tension between not only Barbara and the rest of her family, but for her children and the other kids at school. Oh, wow. Okay. Because this is still, you know, the late 50s, early 60s. Racism Mm -hmm. is alive and well. I mean, it is today, but— right. More so then. Mm-hmm. They talk about that later and uh, when we get to the 1970s, mm-hmm. and that was a big change. Like a lot of them were fighting for 
anti-racism for like 60s and 70s. That's great. Mm -hmm. I know that like racism against indigenous people in Australia is like a pretty big deal. That was like specifically what they were trying to fight against. Yeah. Now, as uncomfortable as school may have seemed, home wasn't that much better for Catherine. (laughs) It was during this time that Catherine would confess she was being sexually abused by more than one male family member. And this happened until she was 11 years old. Now, Catherine recounted this later in life to mental health professionals, of course, not as much to, like, teachers or anyone that could help her at the time. Uh, And there's no way to substantiate this, but all the psychiatrists that have spoke with her and her behavior to literally anyone validates this. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't doubt that that happened. Catherine also remembers her telling her mother at some point in her formative teen years that one, there's no date on this anywhere, that a partner of hers had forced her, like someone she was dating, had forced her to do a sexual act that she didn't want to do. And her mother's response was that she should just lie there and take it and then move on with her life. Mm. Well, of course she's not going to get good advice from her mom. Yeah. She's broken at that point. No. God, but that's what you tell your daughter? Just take it? Like your young daughter. Right. Can't. Ugh. Catherine went on from elementary school to Muswellbrook. I think they pronounce it Musselbrook. I'm sorry. High school, where things were not much better for her. Her former classmates remember her as a loner who often bullied the children that were smaller than her. And so kids were afraid of her, and rightly so. She was scary. Not only was she aggressive, but she was also very strong and rarely walked away from fights as anything but the victor. She assaulted at least one boy at school with a weapon and was once injured by a teacher, which sounds awful, right? Like her teacher hurt her. Wow. But. Okay. I almost felt bad too until I finished reading that sentence, the end of which is a teacher who was found to have acted in self-defense. Ah, there it is. (laughs) Yep, there it is. (laughs) I was like, oh no, a teacher hurt her. Uh, Okay, never mind. At 15, Catherine had had enough of this educational nonsense and decided she would just leave school. I'm done. Even though at this point she could barely read or write, which I find both impressive and sad that she made it all the way to her second year of high school and did not really take to reading or writing. Hmm. She was in school every day and didn't have a learning disability. I mean, she was extensively psychiatrically tested later in life. She didn't have anything wrong with her. At that point, it's almost willful ignorance not to know those things. I know. That's wild. And then she could just pass enough to... Yeah. Well, she just wanted to, like, she didn't want a job that was very literate, which we'll get to in a minute. But, like, you have to actively tune out school to Mm -hmm. not know how to read or write by the time you're 15 if you have been present every day. Right. That's pretty impressive. Which means she also passed. She passed tests because she went on to the next grades. That's what. Yeah, she had to just pass enough. Exactly. Or maybe they just didn't, they were scared of her, so they just passed Maybe. I mean, maybe. She's going to beat me up. It just kind of blew my mind that they were like, she left school at 15, she couldn't read or write. I'm sorry, what? And I'm sure her twin could. Maybe her twin did everything. Maybe. Maybe they did like little... Flippy floppy sometimes. Who knows? Twin would go in and take Joy's the test not talking. For She's not talking. Damn it, Joy. Tell <laughs> us what you've done. <laughs> well, Catherine actually left school to pursue her dream. Who? I know, which was working at the abattoir. Yes. And unlike most of the local girls, she did not want to do any kind of floor work or menial task there. She wanted to be in the room where it happened, killing and butchering animals. Yes. She didn't just like a little bit kind of want to do it. She actively, feverishly tried to get this job. It was like her heart's greatest desire to be like killing animals and butchering them. It was a lot. (laughs) Oh, I know. 
But do you think was it was it that like you say it so rough? That's because it was. But is that exactly yeah. how she wanted it? It wasn't that she wanted to be a butcher. No, no, that's that's what she like said. Okay, all right, just making <laughs> sure because I don't want to like put down butchers that are really excited no, 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 about no, no, their no. That's a, and that's like a, a profession <laughs> that is in an art form for some of them, right. and I'm yeah. not putting down butchers whatsoever. And this isn't like a butcher shop. This yeah. is like a big factory okay. where they're processing cattle. Okay. So it's very, very Monsanto. different. What? Is it Monsanto? Is that <laughs> no. <laughs> they like farm things and yeah. people think they put genetically modified Well, no, they're a terrible company, but <laughs> they can sponsor us. Don't time. come to my house and kill me. I'm not going to say anything about you big, big plants or whatever we're going to call them. <laughs> anyway... For most people in Aberdeen, the abattoir was simply a way of life. That's where you worked because that's the main industry. And they worked there because they had mouths to feed. They had families. They needed to pay a mortgage. They would do their jobs and head home, leaving the events of the day at the door when they left. But this is not what Catherine wanted. As I mentioned, she dreamed of the slaughter and actively went after it. But she couldn't get a job there right away. I'm assuming they didn't hire until like a certain age and she was 15 when she left school. So after leaving school, she worked as a cutter in a clothing factory because at least then she was still cutting something. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta have those knives out. And then she can write that on her resume, I can cut. So, so like, I could cut other stuff. Yeah. I can cut shirts so I can cut meats. Yeah. Same, right? Same. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not same. Sorry, butchers. And clothes cutters. Yes. (laughs) Use different kinds of scissors. Yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of different kinds of scissors. So 12 months later, she actually finally achieved her dream and secured a position in the awful room at the local abattoir, mm-hmm. which sounds like awful like that's terrible, but it's O-F-F-A-L. Awful. My New Jersey accent prevents me from saying that differently. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> and Catherine was overjoyed. What is awful, you might want to know? Ooh, that hurts my mouth to say it that way. <laughs> Even though you don't really want to know, you might ask anyway. It's organs. She was dealing with cow organs like livers and kidneys and brains, you name it. It's all very bloody and graphic, and all the other employees in the room were boys. And this was her ideal 16-year-old girl life, too. She was like, yes, I'm living! So exciting. Bloody kidneys! And boys everywhere. Yeah, she would, like, wrestle with the boys and, like, cut up kidneys. It was a great time. Yeah, that sounds good. I'm in it. You kind of are in it a little bit. No, no, no. But to each their own, I suppose. This could have been a harmless way of life. It wasn't, but it could have been, I guess. But just for contrast, Leslie, why don't you tell us a little bit about this time? It was such a turning point in Catherine's life while she was juggling organs and slipping around in cow blood. Why don't you tell us what the rest of the world was into in the, I guess, early 70s we're in at this point? All right, cool. So Australian teens were very similar to American teens. Their trends were maybe only like a couple months to a couple years behind, Mm -hmm. but they were basically the same. So according to Marie Claire Australia, coming off of the 1960s, an era of boy band short skirts and psychedelias, that's what they said. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) The 1970s gave both men and women a new freedom to dress. This decade is not known for one particular style, but for the combination of a variety of trends and cultures differing from the social conformity of the 1940s and 50s. Mm. The 1970s also introduced the concept of comfort over style. Mixing and matching was introduced with the layering of vests, skirts, and shirts becoming a style staple. 
in the 1970s, Vogue declare, there are no rules in the fashion game now. You're playing it, and you make up the game as you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Vogue. So the early 70s, when Catherine would have been 16, she may have gravitated toward the psychedelic trends, but clearly not. So we're getting to know her. She just did her own thing. Mm-hmm. Like, wait, um, is there like a group of people who wore blood-stained secondhand jeans and men's t-shirts? It might have been this group because okay. these would have been like the hippies. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they did more like bright colors, velvet, chiffons, and prints. Um, exotic jewelry was a must-have with every outfit, as well as headbands, hats, and flowy scarves. Mm. Handmade bracelets and headbands made from materials such as wood, hemp, and flowers and Indian beads were considered an essential part of a unisex wardrobe. Mm. If she wasn't into the hippie look, she may have liked the French girl style. This was more of a boho basic style with jean bell bottoms and white peasant dresses. Mm. <laughs> the white peasant dress would have been great for the butcher shop. And the shop. blood. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It really pops that way. It sure does. You want your blood to pop. Yeah. Her style and music's taste could have also been determined by the type of kids she hung out with, but she didn't hang out with kids, so. Not really. That's fine. So here are some fun groups of children. Okay. <laughs> and that live in Aussie. And I apologize if I get this wrong. I think it's it's either Bajis or Bojis. I forget how it was pronounced. Bajis and Widgies also known as rockers, were teens predominantly from the middle-class families that enjoyed rock and roll, motorcycles and cars. Think like the big, like they like to like amp up their cars and things like that. Greasers. Yep. Uh, drug, they did. They like drug sex and greasing their hair. I mean, <laughs> I'm not mad at that. No. Th- these, <laughs> these were fine. So they, this trend started in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. when they were more like the cast of Grease. That's, mm-hmm. like, what they were. Yes. Uh, but as we get into the 70s, it's a little bit more, like, tight pants, white tees, and beanie hats rather than just, like, wearing that hairstyle okay. with, like, it's like, rolls into each other. <laughs> <laughs> we're, t- we're like John Travolta in Greece. Oh, yes, exactly. Okay. Um, the girls Not John Travolta wear- now. No. That's no hair. Oh, poor Johnny. Yeah. Uh, the girls would wear jeans or capris and tight sweaters. Ooh. The guys would wear long hair, kind of like mullets or like grease it into styles. Ew. The girls wore more fuss-free short hairstyles and liked a neckerchief. Oh, <laughs> your favorite scarf, yeah. I see. Uh, and then there were Sharpies, which were— <laughs> <laughs> We talked about these guys before we, we started did. recording. Yes. They were similar to rockers, but a bit unlike the heavier side. So they were mostly in Melbourne, but there were some, like, in Sydney and other areas. And they were, again, like, these, like, little gangs of teens causing ruckuses all over the place. They're permanent just, markers. What is that in? Um, on everything. <laughs> I just watched that episode of, of 30 Rock where she sees, like, youth. She's like, oh, youths, and, like, runs into her apartment. <laughs> I am perpetually Liz Lemon. Yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. For anybody who doesn't know me, and anybody who does, you'll agree it's fine. Uh, Sharpies were very much a gang, but seemed to restrict their violence to inter-gang ra- rivalries. So Good they had them. like their own. They had like a, a code, like a moral code that they lived by. So Not they fuck with everybody. Yeah, just you. And if you see the photos of the, I'll put up some photos of them in Please my do. like Leslie's fun facts. Oh yay! But they just looked. 
it looked like a group I'd be a part of. Like the way that I dressed, the music that they listened to, I would have probably been a Sharpie and just like gone to these nice. concerts and danced around. And we're going to we're gonna learn their dance. Yeah, so they mostly <laughs> attended live band shows and school dances because they also knew that like from the 50s and 60s with the uh, Bajis and the Sharpies, like they realized that the local community were like a little scared of them. <laughs> So they just had to do their own thing and they would like, they, instead of meeting out in the open, they would like just go to like their concerts. Listen, youths are scary. I'm still afraid of them. They are. They are. So they actually have a dance called the Sharpie Shuffle, which is great. You can find it on YouTube. And they wore Levi jeans, cardigans, jumpers, and t-shirts that were normally styled by a gang member. (laughs) Gotta have your stylist on the gang. And I hate saying like gangs because I just picture like me being like, guys, I'll make our shirts tonight. Or I'm a stylist. (laughs) I have a cricket. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And their music tastes were less Beatles rock like the wedgies were. The widgies. The wedgies. Wedgies. I don't know. Get out of here. I don't know. I don't know how it's pronounced. Uh, But so less of like a Beatles rock and more like Velvet Underground. So to me, I saw them more as like the punk rockers. Okay. Uh, But she also could have been a surfy. Maybe, I don't know if she lived near the water. I don't think so. I don't think so. But surfies are what I visualize when I think of Australia. So they are predominantly from upper working class backgrounds and beachside suburbs. And they live by the four S's. Sun, yes. sand, sea, and sex. Nice. <laughs> and they are just teens that like to surf a lot. They're or just Beverly pres- Hills 90210. Yeah. Got or it. they just like prescribe to that more like low-key beach vibe. And uh, usually for the surfies, they're like surfies for life. Whereas the other like sharpies and bajis, they're like, they get to their mid-20s and they mm-hmm. put on a suit and forget about their past. <laughs> 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 Yes, uh, I'm looking here at a map, and Aberdeen does not a- appear to be on the coast. So there's um, okay. So they, she, they don't live there, but she yeah. could have been like, "Hey, I saw one of those one time. They're pretty good." Yeah, for sure. No, never. So yeah, love your ro- roving youth gang trivia. <laughs> I look forward to an illustrated Leslie's lesson this week. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. You committed to that now. I did. I did. <laughs> there were some good pictures, so it'll be fun to share. Awesome. So soon after her hiring at the abattoir, Catherine was promoted to the boning room, which sounds sexy, but is actually gross. (laughs) Does it? The boning room. Don't wink at me. (laughs) I'm gonna. I mean, this is what she really wanted. This is like the job of her dreams. But I bet there are also like a hundred porns out there called the boning room. For sure. Maybe it's an actual location. Oh, I have a scene in the boning room today. Better make sure I wax. (laughs) This is how I keep myself amused. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm like, maybe a little bit of 13-year-old boy. It's fine. Yeah. I think we all are. (laughs) Never mind. It's not that. In this case, we're talking about deboning an entire cow, which is no small feat. I mean, I've tried to debone a chicken, and that's difficult, let alone an entire cow. So upon receiving this position, Catherine was introduced to her one true love, a set of boning and butchery knives. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. Catherine's knives were her most prized possession. And once she had them of her own, she would keep them near her at all times. Now, everybody says this about her. They're like, she loved the men in her life, but she loved her knives more. She would either mount them anywhere she lived. She would mount them next to her bed or above her bed where she was like looking at them while she slept. Oh, wow. Yeah, she had an intense relationship with blades. 
Um, and when people asked her, why why would you do that? Why do they so close, so close to your bed? She would pout and say, just in case I need them. Oh. And when her butchering knives weren't above her bed, like if they were next to her bed, above her bed was like giant sharp farming equipment, like scythes and things. She just liked to see a sharp thing while oh, she slept. Oh, that's so weird. When she was in her boning room. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know, I was looking at my wedding registry and we were Did looking at Did you register knives. for a scythe? Well, no. <laughs> okay. But I was looking up a knife set mm-hmm. and they have these weird blocks now where, well, maybe they've always had them, but you like, you can see the knives Ooh. in there. And, but they're, I don't know. It was weird and I didn't like it because it, it just seemed, it's, it seemed intense. Like <laughs> it is. If you have your knives like intensely on display, like people have the magnetic strip next to their yes. stoves and they're all like, it's, it's probably very convenient, but also yeah. it's like, here are all my knives. Right. I don't <laughs> mind that as much. This was weird. I'll also put a picture of that up mm, because you, I was like, well, this is strange. You're and committing it, to so many photos. I felt very like, like it would be Hannibal Lecter's like display. I don't disagree. <laughs> she's, she's called the female Hannibal Lecter sometimes. So that is appropriate. And and she would do this with every single bedroom that she inhabited until her arrest in 2000. They were always there. Now, generally, it's good to take pride in your work and enjoy what you do for a living. Yes. I am never going to put that down. After all, if you enjoy what you do, you'll never work a day in your life or some <laughs> untrue bullshit like that. that boomer grown-ups fed us all as children. I know. But in Catherine's case, this was more than true. Not only did she love her job, she was excellent at it. This is a job that takes an unusual combination of brute strength and dexterity that Catherine had in spades. Now, remember, you're negotiating a big fucking cow. Cow is huge. It's like a car. And you have to, like, be able to move it around and take out all the bones. That's I can't even imagine. That's nuts. She was the fastest, cleanest, and most accurate deboner the abattoir had, which would seem like nothing but an asset, right? Like, she's good. She's job security. Except for the fact that Catherine would get a little too into her situation sometimes and her coworkers would notice. Not only would she show off her skills with a knife, but she openly took a lot of pleasure in the act of killing the animals, something that was normally done as efficiently and painlessly as possible. As much as like a slaughterhouse is kind of like a grim place to be, they do try to make that part of it quick and efficient and not draw it out. But that's that's not how she liked to do it, which isn't exactly like within the rules of the company, but sometimes she would just like, accidentally cut an artery and just watch them bleed out while she laughed and told her coworkers to come check it out. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. What she really liked the most about this (laughs) job was that it made, it, it instilled fear in not just the animals, but the other people. It made her very powerful and godlike as she was in charge of something else's life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, she was good at it. So, you know, but Aberdeen was a place not of its time centered around a slaughterhouse. Some people would gather around the windows just to watch the cows die. Not something I liked to read, but I read it nonetheless, because apparently they required some kind of medieval-as-fuck entertainment. So while most of her coworkers thought that maybe old Kath wasn't right in the head, they also didn't think she was dangerous because people like to watch cows die. (laughs) Yep. This is a fun one. Plus, she slept with, like, every guy that worked there, so they were rather fond of that part and therefore willing to ignore the bloodbath. Cool, cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One psychiatrist theorized that Catherine was probably fantasizing about killing people at this point in time but never acted on her impulses because they were being satiated with animals at work. In this way, her job was kind of the best thing for her or at least for the other people in her life who enjoyed living and not being cut into pieces. Yeah. 
At the tender age of 18 in 1973, Catherine met and took up with a co-worker named David Kellett. David was a hard-working, hard-drinking, but kind Aberdeen local. These are the kind of men she loves. These, like, salt-of-the-earth, smoky voice, whiskey-drinking, fight-around, hard-working guys. It's <laughs> the best I way I could. I had a video of you doing that. <laughs> it can never be repeated. That was a one-time show for you. <laughs> David also had a loving and functional family, but found his trauma elsewhere. David had previously worked for the railways at Coffs Harbor. His best friend was killed in front of him in a shunting accident. Now, shunting is a process of manually connecting and disconnecting railroad cars, sometimes while they're running, from what I read, which seems impossible and insane, but that's what every article I read said. Okay. Somebody is an expert on shunting or, or sh um, shifting, I think it's also called, then please tell me all about it because I read all about it and I still don't understand it. Wh however way you put it, it's insanely dangerous. So dangerous that shunters or oh, switchers, as they were um, called, were almost always accompanied by like an ambulance right nearby or an ambulance yeah. car because they're like, these guys are going to die. We they're have to be so here. so wild in Australia. I know. There's wild They do now. the craziest things. Mm -hmm. But this happened all over. This was a practice oh, in like okay. Britain and the States too. David was later present when a train hit a school bus in Kempsey, killing six children Ooh. in 1968. This was like, of course, before he met Catherine. But he helped rescue the injured and remove the bodies. Mm. That, you don't come back from that all the way. And so he began to drink very heavily to cope with the trauma that he had endured, you know, at witnessing these deaths. Because I think a lot of people would need to forget some of the thing that fucking heavy as often as they could. Mm -hmm. No judgment there. He was then transferred to Musselbrook after causing several derailments due to falling asleep while shunting. Very dangerous. Yeah. I don't know a lot about shunting, but you cannot do it asleep. Not safely, anyway. His behavior deteriorated, and eventually he lost his job at the railroad. But soon he got work nearby at the Ab Aberdeen Abattoir, where he met and fell in love with Catherine. Did he fall in love with her? <laughs> I mean, a lot of people did. Well, that's true. That's true. So... I hate to be, like, judgy about anyone's appearance, but when you see pictures of her, she is not the woman you picture, like, stealing everyone's heart. She's not, like, a hot, crazy girl. No, not at all. She's, like, a very tall, broad-shouldered, rosy-faced. She's, she's a woman. <laughs> she's working stock. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> they were a funny-looking pair to most locals. Catherine was tall and broad-shouldered and a redhead, as I mentioned, and David was, like, a little guy with short, dark hair. Nice. So she had, like, this tiny little man. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> yep. At first, David's family really liked Catherine. They said she was sweet and affable. David's sister, oh, they, they probably didn't use the word affable, but I did. <laughs> David's sister, Sandy, remarked that the two were opposites, but madly in love. Sandy would go on to live with the couple from time to time, and she remarked that while she found Kathy to be lovely, which they called her Kathy, she did notice that she had a hair trigger and could go from peaceful to pummeling in seconds flat. David's mother admitted to a been concerned with Catherine and her family because they had, quote, roughness around the edges. <laughs> this woman is so polite. Yeah. When you hear what Catherine puts her through, I promise you will be amazed at how, like, dignified she speaks. Because <laughs> I would be, like, not as nice. Right. Sandy and David would call Catherine's violent rages, Kathy getting cranky. Oh, no. <laughs> Which makes me think of the Kathy cartoons. Yes. Arg. <laughs> <laughs> Mondays. Oh, Mondays. <laughs> I'd say it was a hell of a lot more than cranky, but I don't control the world's adjectives, but I should. You should. I know. Absolutely. It's what a do we call I for bear? that? I don't know. The adjective prime minister? 
Yeah. Call us, please. Let us know. <laughs> anyway, in 1973, David and Catherine were married despite her cranky spells because there's no stopping love or bloodlust in my experience. David seemed to be able to cope with the mood swings, and the pair were very much in love still. However, before the ceremony, they're like wedding ceremony, on, like on their wedding day, dressed up in their clothes, right before the ceremony happens, David is handed perhaps the biggest red flag I have ever seen in my life, and he chose to ignore it. Just before their walk down the aisle, Catherine's mother approached David and said, quote, you better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her, which means cheating on her. She'll fucking kill you. <laughs> Isn't that a fun joke? Yeah, but if he's not going to cheat on her, she won't kill him. Right. Moms. What are moms. they going to do next? They're so crazy. Oh, you never know what moms will do. Except soon enough, David would discover that Barbara was not joking and she meant absolute business. David woke up in the middle of the night on their wedding night due to the dulcet thumps of Catherine beating the ever-loving piss out of him for not having sex with her five times. You see, David had the audacity to fall asleep after two or three, depending on the source. We'll give him three, whatever. As it turns out, Catherine's mother had told her ages ago, you know, when Catherine was a child, that she had her, she and her father had had sex five times on their wedding night. This is a normal share for a mother and small daughter, right? And so Catherine thought this was normal. This is like the normal standard. And by not completing these acts, David had somehow insulted her womanhood. Mm. So the way mm -hmm. that, you mm -hmm. know, <laughs> David, David, though, he didn't know any of that, mainly because it's not actually a standard to any other human in the world. He only knew that he got laid twice or three times on his wedding night, and then his new wife beat the shit out of him and tried to strangle him to death in their bed. Yeah, don't fall asleep, man. <laughs> <laughs> Ever. <laughs> Never sleep again. No. That dick is hers. It's an eventful wedding night. <laughs> that dick is hers. Put that on a t-shirt. Yeah, man. Don't do it. Don't do it. Okay. <laughs> but the next morning, everything would be smoothed out when Catherine explained it was just a misunderstanding. I'm sorry. I thought it was supposed to be five, and I got so upset. I didn't know. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> you ready to go now? Okay. How about five times now? Yeah. This, however, would prove to be a running theme. Because of the unrealistic expectations that had been presented to her in her youth, Catherine was, much like her father, completely insatiable when it came to sex and insisted on it all the time. This is why some people theorize, mostly men, that the men in her life kept coming back to her time and time again after she beat them to a bloody pulp because she was super good in bed. Ladies, if you just, like, really concentrate and get awesome at ultra-frequent sex, you can do pretty much anything. Yeah. And get away with it. I also don't think, as a girl, you have to be good at it. I think you just, they just want to have sex. They said good, and by by good, they, they might have meant a lot. Yeah. <laughs> just, she has sex a lot, or she was good at it. I think she just had it a lot. Both are the same. <laughs> They're the same. <laughs> they equal the same. <laughs> they equal the same. <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> oh, and yes, this happens with multiple men multiple times. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Eventually, when she got into one of her cranky moods, Catherine began to threaten David and his sister Sandy with her beloved knives. David went so far as to warn Sandy that if she made Catherine angry or cranky and she was well within reach of a knife, she absolutely would use it on her. So it was best to stay away from her when a mood pops up. 
Well, at least there's a warning. Yeah. They're like, she gets mad, you got to run away. Yeah. Not like, we should not be in this situation anymore. Just walk away when she gets mad. Yeah. Great. <laughs> By just 20 years old, so just shy of two years into their marriage, Catherine was pregnant. But things were not going great otherwise. Catherine and David's relationship had grown violent and tempestuous. David has now gone back to work at a rail at the railroad, some railroad somewhere, and has also taken up with other women, which Catherine is obviously not cool with. But that was the one thing Mama said. That dick was hers. Yeah. God damn it. Damn it. I know. On May 11th. Well, he doesn't die, but it's not good. Okay. (laughs) On May 11th of 1976, Catherine gave birth to her first daughter, a baby girl named Melissa. Six weeks later, she tried to stab David in the eye with a broken beer bottle. As one does. I mean, we just talked about it in Idle Hands. The beer bottle. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It happens. It does. And at this point, David tries to leave her for the first time. You know, stabbed in the head, gotta leave. He takes off with his girlfriend and leaves Catherine with the new baby. Bad call, David. Very bad call. Within two weeks of David being gone without a trace, Catherine loses her whole entire mind. She is seen by neighbors walking down the main street in Aberdeen with her two-month-old infant in a pram, which sounds normal. Walk down the street, baby in a pram. Except Catherine was screaming her head off and throwing the pram around from side to side violently. And she was headed straight into traffic. Oh, no. Yeah. Luckily, the people of Aberdeen recognized this as not normal or safe behavior, and so they called the damn cops before she had the chance to murder her own baby by way of speeding cars. The police took Catherine to St. Elmo's Hospital for psychiatric care, and she was held there for two weeks. The doctors diagnosed her with postpartum depression, gave her a prescription for antidepressants, and gave her her child back and sent her home. I know. I'm as baffled as the rest of you, but... I'm going to give the authorities one pass, and this is it. And here's why. Because for as violent as Catherine has been in the past, this was her first real arrest or run-in with the police. I don't even know if you can call it an arrest. They just took her. They had been called about fights between her and David before, but it's easy to assume that when there is a domestic dispute between a man and a woman, the man is at fault. Mm Mm-hmm. Men are victims too, and far too often we do not recognize this. In addition to this fact, postpartum depression and the less often diagnosed postpartum psychosis can cause women to want to harm or actually go through with harming their own child. Right. We also need to be more aware of the fact that motherhood is overwhelming and women often need help. But that's not the case here. It's just still an important point to make, and I can't pass up on an important point. Well, this is a pretty good explanation for what happened to Catherine and her baby. Like, you could explain this incident this way. That's, it's not true. Catherine didn't get what she wanted, and so she tried to take it out on an innocent infant for attention. Mm. And so, you know, she figured, like, I'm going to do this big thing, and then David's going to hear about it and come home. Right. And she would do it again. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty, I think, isn't that, like, kind of normal behavior for, well, Girl. I don't know what we... We'll find out later about her. But if she did have, like, anything mental going on, like, yeah. just to, obviously, she has the kid, so she's she, just trying to keep her husband. Let's harm the kid, because then the husband will have to come back to make sure the kids are exactly. safe. Or if the kids are dead, he has to come back, too. Mm-hmm. I'm going to spoiler alert at the end of this for one second. She does not have any major mental disorders. She has a personality disorder, according to mm-hmm. every psychiatrist that has evaluated her, which is a, more than three 
they all say that she probably has like antisocial personality disorder, but okay. they do not say she has any kind of actual psychosis, though she does try to fake it a lot. Mm-hmm. You have to be pretty cognizant to fake something like that too. But we can talk about that more after the events play out. So then she's back home after two weeks with her antidepressants. Shortly after, one sunny afternoon, a local shopkeeper named Lorna looked out the window of her corner store to see a horrible event play out before her very eyes. She saw Catherine holding little baby Melissa and walking toward the train tracks. The train was running on time that day and would be passing by any moment. Catherine then calmly placed the baby on the railroad tracks and walked away. Lorna couldn't believe what she was seeing. This situation then plays out exactly like a silent movie. Though if it had been a silent movie, Catherine would be a man in a top hat with a tweedly mustache. But for now, we're just going to have to imagine that part. So, the helpless baby is lying on the train tracks. Lorna, too far away to get there in time, is just screaming from her shop window as the train advances. Just then, a local folksy gentleman, who we know only as Old Ted, hears Lorna causing a commotion, turns to see the baby on the tracks. Sensing imminent danger, Old Ted runs to her rescue while the train steams ever forward, missing them by seconds. <sighs> okay, in ra- reality, it was like minutes. It wasn't that fast, but okay. my <laughs> that version... was exciting. I know, my version <laughs> was way more exciting and could be scored by an old-timey piano, so like... I think it wins. <laughs> John, score it with an old-timey piano. <laughs> I don't even have to tell him that. He, he will would, automatically he do it. it. Yeah. <laughs> Either way, while all this was going on, Catherine had run away into a neighbor's backyard, grabbed an axe, and ran around the yard screaming and swinging it over her head for maximum effect. <laughs> <laughs> People really have to stop leaving unattended axes in their yards. For sure. It never goes well. Mm-mm. We've seen this before many times. If you leave an axe in your backyard, somebody's dying. Yeah. Don't do it. Don't do it, man. Once again, the paddy wagon carts Catherine off to the hospital. And I guess the baby hangs out with old Ted for a while. Okay. I'm not sure. No one mentions what happens to her. (laughs) I bet that was so fun. (laughs) Old Ted sounds great. Yeah. I bet he was wonderful. Top notch. Saving her from train tracks. (laughs) He's great. But authorities just assume Catherine is having another bout of lady insanity. And drops her back off at St. Elmo's. (laughs) (laughs) Catherine waves goodbye to the nice officers and then checks herself out right away. Okay. Yep. (laughs) She grabs her baby from old Ted on the way home, or more likely her mother, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And then goes back to her house. Let me reiterate, this woman has two counts of attempted murder against her own infant and zero charges against her. And now she is in her house free with the baby. Well, yeah, she's no longer lady insane, so. She has, like, uterus madness or yeah. something. <laughs> so now I'm less okay with the cops because they had one shot. The second shot, axe, crazy, running around. Yeah. You got to do something. And still, David has not returned home. So Catherine hatches another plan. The next day, she walks to her neighbor's house and tells them that her baby is sick and she needs them to drive her to the hospital because her car is off that day or something. I don't know. The neighbors, being nice people who apparently live in a cave and have no access to the world around them, agree to take Catherine and her ailing baby to the hospital. They, meaning the neighbor lady and her children, so now we have neighbor family. Aww. Not neighbor boys, not neighbor girls. Neighbor family. A whole family of neighbors. Mm-hmm. A whole ass neighbor family. They drive her back to her house. I don't know what she. This gets confusing because apparently the baby is asleep in the house alone, which. I it okay. might be the safest the baby has ever been. You're not wrong. <laughs> I guess Catherine just walked down the block to a house and they figured that 
they they were going to need the car anyway, so they all like piled back in and drove to go get the baby. And it was the late seventies, so you could just leave your baby in the house alone for a little bit, and nobody got mad at you. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. When they arrived at the house, like four seconds later, one of the neighbor children offered to walk into the house with Catherine. This is a neighbor girl, so it's a daughter. Okay, neighbor girl said she would go in with Catherine and help her bring out the baby and her things. So they walk into the house together. Catherine, like, leads her into the baby's room, and the girl is standing next to her, and Catherine leans down into the crib, which they call a cut. So charming. And the girl is assuming she's going to come out with the baby, but she doesn't. She comes out with a knife! (gasps) And she chases her outside into the front yard and slashes her in the face under the lemon tree, which is a detail I really like. Yes. (laughs) All of this is very shifty. Catherine then holds the entire family hostage with this big giant knife. She loves her knives. Demanding that they all get in the car and drive. She then explains that she needed to go to David's mother's house so she could kill her. Oh. Because the best way to get to a man is his mother. That's true. Yeah, but like (laughs) not, I don't think they mean like you should murder his mother. No. No? You look a little unsteady. Like you might think murder is the right way. Well, yeah, I mean, if you got, (laughs) sometimes you have to break through the mom to get to the son. With a big knife. Yeah. Got it. No, I don't condone this. (laughs) (laughs) But this is not how Catherine chose to take it. She chose to take it the murder way. The neighbor family complied because they had no choice and began to drive, eventually convincing Catherine that they needed to stop at a service station. And when they did so, they had to let the youngest son go free because he was asthmatic. Man, God, asthma really gets you far in life. You get out of a murder car. You get vaccine priority. Sometimes you feel like you're eminently dying by suffocation, but there's give and take with everything. For sure. I have asthma. That's why. There you go. Um, Anyway, the son is set free while they are all at the service station, and he immediately runs in and tells the attendant what is happening, of course. Thankfully, police must have been extremely close by because after the attendant called the damn cops— they were, they, they had arrived at the service station before they could finish their business there. It's kind of unclear what they're doing there. I don't know whether they said, like, the car needed some kind of help or they needed gas. It just says service in a service station, so I'm not 100% sure, but I know there's a mechanic there. Two police officers approached the station and ascend upon Catherine, who, as soon as she saw them, grabbed Asthma Boy and held a knife to his throat. He probably couldn't breathe. He was probably oh, freaking the gosh. fuck out. Police had to subdue her with brooms? There's like poking her with brooms. Once they got her into custody, she was taken to Morissette Psychiatric Hospital, where she told the staff she had recognized the mechanic at the service station and wanted to also kill him because he had fixed David's car, the one that took him away. Oh, well, I get that. Right. And then after, (laughs) she had to move on from the mechanic to go kill David's mother because then, like, she would get to him through mom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All of this is very— Makes sense. Makes sense. A good plan. And I love that the cops de-escalated that situation with broomsticks. Through the cunning use of brooms. See, this should be used for gun control safety. Agreed. <laughs> you only need a broom. That's it. To combat the crazy knife woman. Yeah. I'm on board. This time police located David after this event. Finally, they're like, um, listen, your wife's real crazy. She's done some awful things. She's unhinged. Yeah. They were they were still legally married after all. He just left. He didn't divorce her. Unbelievably, when David hears of this incident, he leaves his girlfriend, picks up his mother, and the pair went to retrieve Catherine from the psychiatric hospital. 
She was released into David's mother's custody. But she wanted to kill her. I know. I can't. Uh, They made a choice. On their way home from the hospital, David, his mother, and Catherine are set to pick up baby Melissa, who has been at Catherine's mother's house. I guess old Ted was busy. When they arrive, Catherine exits the car to retrieve the baby, leaving David and his mother to stay behind. She's like, you stay in the car. I'll go get Melissa. While Catherine is inside, her mother runs out of the house, straight at the car, into the driver's side window, and starts to strangle David to the point where he's, like, blacking out, and his mother is sitting in the back seat, horrified, unable to do anything. Catherine hears this commotion, runs outside, punches her own mother in the head so hard that she knocks her out cold, saving David's life. Then she runs in, gets the baby, they get in the car and leave before her mother can wake up off the ground. Wow. There's so much. I can't. I'm overwhelmed. Oh my gosh. I know. So then after that, which was enough for anybody, Mm -hmm. David decides that what they really need is a fresh start. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. The pair leave their home and move to Woodbridge, where Catherine finds work at another abattoir, and David begins work as a long-haul trucker. In October, for Catherine's 21st birthday, David throws her a big party. And for a minute, Catherine is so happy. David's family said that she was charming and delightful and on her best behavior that night because all the attention was on her, and she loved it. Validation, man. Yeah, man. You're right. (laughs) I liked how you brought that right back around. Trained you well. (laughs) (laughs) But this behavior would prove to be short-lived, of course. Sandy, David's sister, was once again living with them. I don't know what she did that every now and then she was like, I should live with you and your murdery wife. It'd be nice. Anyway, she recalls an incident when she heard a loud and distressed crying coming from the bathroom, which was obviously baby Melissa. And Sandy thought maybe something was wrong with her and that Catherine might need help. So she ran into the bathroom only to find Catherine holding Melissa under the scalding hot tap. When Sandy told David about this, his response was that she would need to keep quiet about this and not tell anyone. Because if Catherine found out that she had said anything, and if she found out she told David, she would kill both of them while they slept. That's the solution. Well, yeah, I mean, they're handling it. Right. Not well. No. No. (laughs) Life goes on in this tempestuous manner for three more years. Then in 1979, the tables turn and David returns home to find Catherine with another man in his bed. There are like a lot of lurid retellings of this where she's like holding knives and on top of this guy, which I guess is like for the boning room version of this. (laughs) Going to bring that back as much as I can. So after that, they move yet again because, you know, need another fresh start to Lansdowne where Catherine begins begging him to have another baby. And no one can turn her down. So before long, she's pregnant again. And David, at this point, is absolutely terrified of her. One night when Catherine was very heavily pregnant with their second child, David went out to the pub to play darts in a tournament with his friend. And his team made it to the finals. Hooray! So exciting. I know. So he was late coming home, something Catherine notoriously hated. David arrived home, unlocking the front door, and tiptoed in. But no sooner had he made it through the threshold than Catherine came up from behind him and hit him in the back of the head with a cast-iron skillet, splitting his skull wide open. Somehow, David then manages to crawl out of his home and make his way to his neighbor's house. I'm unclear as to whether this was a house or apartment situation, but wherever they were living, he was able to quickly get to a neighbor. And the neighbor is interviewed in the documentary I watched, and she remembers him staggering through her door, covered in blood, and she remarked that it looked as though his head had been split in half. Which it had. Basically, yes. 
While David had been at the pub, Catherine had also, in a rage because of his tardiness, put all of his clothing into the bathtub and lit it on fire. Then she grabbed the iron skillet and waited for him to return. David was taken to the hospital, obviously, with a fractured skull and had to remain there for a week. At this point, the police very much would like to press charges, but Catherine puts on her nice face and tells them and David that she was just so upset and so pregnant. She didn't mean to hurt him. She just wanted her family to be back together, and he really should come home on time. That's true. Which David accepts. Yeah. And does not press charges. Good. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Smart. For the sake of his children, he says. Mm-hmm. And unbelievably, he returns home to Catherine once again. Not much changes after this. Catherine is still furious that David David's work takes him away so often and believes that he probably has a woman in every town. And maybe he does. We don't know. And honestly, that's not the point. David and his children, both born and unborn, are wildly unsafe. On March 6, 1980, Catherine gives birth to their second daughter, Natasha, and life continues to move along. In 1984, David goes out for work in his truck, and when he returns this time, Catherine is gone. She has returned to Aberdeen with the children, where she lived temporarily with her parents until she was able to rent a house of her own and return to work at the abattoir. As it turned out, Catherine was not insanely in love with David and mad with grief while he was away. She just hated not getting exactly what she wanted when she wanted it, and when what she wanted stopped being David, or more specifically, David's fear and misery, she has left. I get it. You just get bored. Sometimes sometimes that happens in a relationship. Does you know? it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's better she left now than continued on lying to him. <laughs> I thought my silent movie was dramatic. <laughs> Catherine worked back at the abattoir for a year and rented a house in a nearby town. Uh, she injured her back the following year and went on disability pension. She no longer needed a rent accommodation close to her work, so the government gave her a housing commission residence in Aberdeen. Basically, her house was paid for because Australia has their shit together. In 1986, she took up with a man named David Saunders, another hard-working, hard-drinking David, who I will call Saunders to avoid confusion. She really just found the same guy, only a different last name. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like you don't want to stray too far. It's just you want something a little bit new and different. A little taller. Yeah. Had that going for him. Soon after they began dating, Saunders gave up his apartment, packed up his clothes and his dingo puppy, and moved in with (laughs) Catherine and her children. He's got a dingo. That's exciting. A dingo puppy. I don't know. I I had so much to do to research this case, and I wanted to research the legality of owning a dingo puppy, but I didn't get the chance. So maybe that'll be a little extra that we do for you. Like, is do they often own them, you mean? I don't know, because they're a wild animal. They do. They have they have pet dingoes okay. all the time. It was in um, Our Lips Are Sealed, the Mary-Kate and Ashley also movie. Right, so that's a fact. Yeah, uh, they had a pet okay. dingo. Also, it's a, so that's obviously their like national animal. Doesn't a dingo eat somebody's baby and call miner's daughter? Yes. <laughs> it's a very famous line. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and said just like that. <laughs> that was dingo a- ate my baby. Yeah. That's how they say yeah. it. Uh, but also they often eat because- Dingoes are like twice, there's double the amount of dingo or kangaroos that there are he, humans. In, in, uh, a lot of roos about. Yeah, in Australia. So they eat them a lot too. I don't want a dog that eats kangaroos. That's too much. Yeah. I can't be watching my pet take down a big ass kangaroo. That's terrifying. 
But you know what? Wait, I'm sorry. Is a dingo different than a kangaroo? Yes. Oh. It's I like a realize. dog. I thought it was the same thing. Leslie. Oh, no. <laughs> I thought it was the same thing. How did I not know this? I don't know. They're like, oh, let me, we need to pause for the cause for one second. Yeah, it's like a dog. It looks like a dog. The dingo is an ancient lineage of dog found in Australia. Let me just see it. It's text. <laughs> oh. It's not a kangaroo. I didn't realize that. So just forget everything I just <laughs> said, guys. I guess I just wanted to talk about kangaroos for a while. I want This to- was not in the end. Listen, I want to rewind for one second because you believed that people owned kangaroos that ate other kangaroos. And I love that. No, I believe that people owned kangaroos and that people ate kangaroos. Oh, they do eat kangaroos in Australia. Yeah. (laughs) I thought you said the dingoes ate the kangaroos. No, they might. We went on. They might eat kangaroos. I don't know. We went for it. Why did I always think that it was a kangaroo? I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. Dingoes can be kept as pets if they are taken from a litter no older than six weeks of age and then aggressively trained. Um, unfortunately, for city dwellers looking to take in a dingo, these dogs cannot be cooped up in an apartment and require a large amount of space for roaming. So they're like, you have kind of a wild pet. Mm. That must have just been something that I never cared to. Truly love that you thought that, it. though. Yeah. I just never really looked so into it. So when I said it. a dingo ate my baby, you thought a kangaroo ate somebody's baby. Yes. <laughs> Have you ever seen a kangaroo? They're, like, vicious. But not carnivorous, I don't think. I don't I don't know much about them. Why are we That's looking up my- Australian wildlife now? <laughs> oh, no. This should have been the information that you had me look up this week. <laughs> Why would I think that this that would happen? Why would I believe that this was a thing? Wasting my time on I'm fashion right. in the 70s. Get out of here. I'm right. Kangaroos are herbivores. They eat grasses, flowers, leaves, ferns, moss, and sometimes insects. But they don't eat babies, but they do regurgitate their food and rechew it. Yeah. There you have it. All right. Guys, there's your lesson on <laughs> dingoes and roos. Well, fuck. <laughs> now I got to change the name of this episode to dingoes and roos. Oh, no. Anyway, in 1987, Catherine and Saunders had a particularly violent fight, and Saunders said he wanted to leave Catherine. So Catherine ran out of the house. Saunders followed and soon saw Catherine outside, sitting in the grass, cradling his dingo puppy. Warning, you have to skip this if you hate dog violence. But as he got closer, he noticed that she was not cradling it. She was holding it and had slit the puppy's throat. Saunders then watched it bleed to death in front of his eyes helplessly. After this, Saunders stayed with friends for a while, but always came back to Catherine. In June of 1988, the pair had a child together, a girl named Sarah, and Saunders, trying to be a responsible father, put money down on a cottage for all of them to live in. And then Catherine paid the cottage off in full in 1989 when her workman's compensation from the abattoir came through, so she really saw it as hers. Everything needs to be hers. This is very important with Catherine, like, my house, my children, my things, my dick, not anymore. But then Saunders made the mistake of coming home late one night. Mm. When he arrived, Catherine hit him in the head with a hot iron and then stabbed him in the stomach with a pair of scissors. Saunders then ran away into the night, of course, and for whatever reason did not take legal action. I'm guessing he was afraid for his daughter's well-being. Mm-hmm. When he returned to see Sarah, he found out that Catherine had cut up all of his clothing and told the authorities that he beat her up, and she filed a restraining order that prevented him from seeing either her or their daughter. She had decided that it was done on her terms, and that was that. Mm. 
This is common because she understands that women are going to be the default victim in these cases most of the time. She knows that if she says this to the police, they're just going to believe her. And they do. Right. I mean, but again, he shouldn't have come home late. (laughs) His dingo shouldn't have been hanging out. I don't know what to tell you. That's also a porn. My dingo is is hanging out. I was going to (laughs) say. I was thinking of things. (laughs) Guys, I'm so sorry I've done this to all of you. In 1990, she took up with another man. His name was John Chillingworth. This time we have a John. And he was 43 years old and a former co-worker at the abattoir. Their relationship was the same as all the other ones. Catherine got pregnant, gave birth the following year to her one and only boy named Eric. Their relationship lasted three rocky, violent years before she left him for a man she had been having an affair with for some time. And this man was John Price. John Price, by all accounts, was a very good man. There is, like, not a person that has a bad thing to say about John Price. He had three children, two daughters and a son, with his ex-wife. Their marriage had dissolved in 1988, but both were still committed to their children. His ex-wife had kept their two-year-old daughter, but the oldest two lived with him. Pricey, as he was called, had a great many friends, a good job, and his children loved him. And it is a terrible shame that he ever met Catherine Knight. Mm. But he did. The two did meet, and according to Catherine, they fell madly in love. Catherine would start spending most of her time at his house, moving in her things and treating this like her territory. Again, this is she's very territorial. When she sees something she wants, it has to be hers. Though she was never explicitly asked to move in at this time. But she saw Pricey and all that he owned as her territory. Initially, the Price children liked Catherine. They had said that she was pleasant and kind, but not without her quirks. One of his daughters remarked that she was both good and bad for her father, but she knew that they both had qualities that were good and bad. Her dad did like to drink, and he was prone to fighting from time to time because from what I have read and am led to believe, this is just like a common personality there. Mm -hmm. So, whatever. But the kids knew that there was something like a little bit off about her. And one of their her, one of his daughters recalls an incident when they were all in the car and Catherine was driving. And she swerved to hit a dog. Oh. Yeah. And the kids were like, Kath, why'd you do that? And she was like, I don't like dogs. And then just kept on driving. Mm-hmm. Well, that like, checks out. Yeah. I feel like I would have been more alarmed than they were. But I can't be judging them. Pricey was well aware of Catherine's violent history, but still allowed her to formally move into his home in 1995, as he thought he could handle her. Mm -hmm. That's what they all think. (laughs) And apart from their violent fights, which would have been another deal-breaker for me, life was good. But this was not enough for Catherine. She wanted to marry Pricey more than anything, but he did not want to marry her. He kind of made it clear that this was a relationship where they would have a lot of sex and hang out, but he didn't want to get married again. And this was a sticking point for them, and they argued bitterly over it often. In 1998, Catherine and Pricey fought over his refusal to marry her, only this time it got way out of hand, and Catherine was furious. Catherine, I feel like she's always furious, but I guess this is an extra one. In retaliation for him refusing to marry her, when he left the house, she videotaped a bunch of items that he had allegedly stolen from work. Now, these items were out-of-date first aid kits that he had taken from trash. Okay. But it's still not legal to do. Right. Like medical kits. You can't take them. But she videos all of them and then sends the tape to his boss and the police. And his boss had no choice but to fire him. 
Right. So then he lost his job of 17 years. But, like, Kathy. I know. This isn't good for either of you. You can't marry a man out of a job like that. She has all her disability money, I guess. Also, she does not care. That's true. She just wants... She yeah. And she told people about doing this. And she was like, yeah. that'll really get him. Now he'll have no choice. He has nowhere else to go but back to me. Oh, that's true. Because then she could financially support him. Which is more ideal for her, obviously. Right. But I mean, like, again, John. John Price. Is that yeah, his name? Yeah, that's why yeah. I went by Pricey because Pricey. we had another John. John. It's all yeah. Johns and Davids. It's like a pattern. Mm-hmm. Two Davids, two Johns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I mean, just make her like an honest woman. That's all she's asking for. M- marry that. Yeah. Sounds good. It does. Sounds great. Went real good for the last guy who did it. Mm-hmm. Five times or you're out the door yeah, but is what I always say. But she's madly in love with him now. Like, right. this is the one. That's what she thinks. She does. She's like, this is yeah. the one man for me. Yep. But after she ruined his life and, like, killed his job, he had absolutely nothing. So within a few months, because, like, when, when she did all this to him, he did kick her out. He was like, get the fuck out of my house. This is terrible. But within a few months, he came crawling back to her because he had nothing. But he didn't invite her to move back in. He just started a relationship with her. But she kind of did anyway. She just was always had to be the alpha and take shit over. Their fighting became even more frequent. And most of his friends would no longer have anything to do with him if he stayed with her. They were like, you got to get rid of her or we can't hang out. She's a nightmare. Listen to your friends, people. I know. Good friends. That is, that is a rule, a general rule. Like, your friends probably know when you're dating someone that's shit or you're married to someone that's shit. And if they ever have the, like, work up the nerve to tell you that they think that person is shit, you should probably leave them. Yep. I'm going to stand kind of firm on that because I know we would, if in that position, you'd never want to see it. You never want to see, like, oh, I'm dating this shit person. I should leave them. But, like, your friends are probably right. Yeah, they're seeing a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So things escalate significantly in the end of 1999, and Pricey began actively trying to get away from Catherine. In February of 2000, a series of assaults on Pricey culminated with Catherine stabbing him in the chest. He didn't really tell too many people about this one, but finally he got really fed up and kicked her back out of his house again. Not that she was living there, but he was like, get out! Um, At least he tried to. On February 29th, on the way to work, he stopped at the Scon Magistrate's court on his way to work and took out a restraining order in an attempt to keep her away from both himself and his children. But the courts told him that it would take three weeks to process and would not be effective until then. So he was basically stuck. There's nothing he could do at this point. That afternoon, he even went so far as to go to his coworkers and show him, like, his stab scar. And he was telling them, like, this woman is insanely violent. And if I don't come to work tomorrow... It's because Catherine has murdered me. Oh, dear. Yeah. So obviously his coworkers beg him. They're like, don't go home then. Stay at our house. It's easy. If you don't go home, you can't get murdered. But he stated that he was afraid that if he didn't go home, Catherine would kill his children. And so he would rather it be him than them. Mm -hmm. So Pricey arrived home to find that Catherine, although she was not in the house herself, had sent the children away for a sleepover at a friend's house. He then spent the evening hanging out with his neighbors before coming home and going to bed at about 11 p.m. Earlier that day, Catherine had went out to the shops and bought herself some new racy black lingerie. Okay. Then she went over to her daughter Natasha's house, um, who I believe had a child of her own at this point. I can't be sure about that one. And um, first she showed her the lingerie because she loved being inappropriate. 
And then she went from she went to all of her children's houses that day actually, and and made these videos that people would later interpret as a pretty crude last will and testament. So she'd be like, you know, that car is yours, or like, hey, I'm saying like if anything ever happened to me, you get my jewelry. So it was like committed to a tape. Okay. She then later that evening arrived at Pricey's house at about 11:30 at night. Now remember, he had gone to sleep at 11 o'clock. So she walks in the house. Change your fucking locks. But she walks in the house, and he's sleeping. So she sat down and watched Star Trek for a little while, and then took a shower. Then she put on her sexy black negligee, woke up Pricey, and they had sex, and then he fell asleep. Oh, no. Which is a big mistake. Because after that, Catherine would act out her final revenge. The next morning, co-workers discovered that Pricey hadn't shown up for work. That is never good. Mm-hmm. And they knew what he had said the previous night, so they were extremely concerned. And this is at, like, 6 a.m. They were immediately like, somebody's got to go over there. He's not here. He's never late. He always comes to work. So his employer sent over a co-worker to see if everything was all right. I don't know where he's working at this point because he did lose the other job, but he's an irresponsible dude, so he got another job. Mm -hmm. The co-worker saw that Pricey's truck was in the driveway, and there was blood on the front door handle. And so he knew that it was time to call the damn cops. The police arrived, and after seeing the blood on the doorknob, they peeked down through the mail slot in the door, and they saw something hanging in front of the door, and they thought it was like a, a blanket that had been hung up or a curtain. And so when they found the door was locked, they went around the back to look, and they looked at everything, and the back door was locked as well, so they just forced their way in that door. And what those officers found in that house was enough to scar the rest of them for their, like the rest of their lives. A lot of them no longer are on the force. This, this, what we're about to talk about, profoundly affected everyone that had to deal with it or hear about it. Mm -hmm. The lead detective on this case stopped practicing after this was over, and he's still in therapy. He oh, was wow. horribly traumatized. The officers walked in the back door, and immediately they see that the house is just a bloodbath. I will post some photos in the photo suite, nothing that's going to put you in therapy, but um, enough to see what I'm talking about and walked to the front door where they were seeing what was, like, hanging. And above the front door on a hook was something long and hanging from, like, ceiling to almost floor, which they thought was something that they could move aside, and the officer tried to brush it aside, and he looked at his arm after he did that, and his arm was covered in blood. And he thought to himself, how did I hurt myself? Did I cut my arm coming in the back door? What is this? When he went to look again, he noticed that it was coming from the thing they thought was a blanket, but it wasn't a blanket. It was Jonathan Price's skin. Oh, my God. All what? of it except his head in one clean sheet. Oh. Because she knew how to do that. That's so wild. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know you could do that. I know. Next to the skin on the ground was a torso. The torso also, of course, had no head, no skin, and no genitals. There was blood pooled everywhere and on every wall and every surface. The police then traveled into the kitchen where they saw a large pot on the stovetop, which it looked like it had been cooking. And the one police officer remarks that he looked to his partner and said, well, I think I just found the head. Mm. And he wasn't wrong. Because when they opened the lid, they found the boiled head of John Price. Then they looked over to the dining table, which was set with a meal for two laid out. 
On the plates were neatly placed portions of cooked John Price. Arranged near them was vegetables and stuff. So this was like a whole meal that had been cooked. And next to each place, like plate, was a name tag and notes laid out for each of his two children that lived with them. The note read, and she she cannot spell. Oh, right. Remember I said she, she can't really read or write. It said, this note that she left for the kids, Time you got back, Jonathan, for rapping, which was raping, my doubter, which means daughter, you to Beck, Price's daughter, Rebecca, for Ross, for little John, his son. Now play with little John's dick, John Price. So, if you need a translation. <laughs> I do, I do. What she is insinuating is she is getting back at him for molesting his children, which never happened. Mm-hmm. Oh, Kathy. Yeah. Not... Not good. She wanted the she because she had obviously planned this all out. What she wanted the police to believe was that he had horrifically abused her and these children, and that she right. just snapped and and needed to save them. And so she killed him in this horrible way. It was a smart plan. Yeah. Well, these insane accusations were found to be groundless nearly immediately. Mm-hmm. They then continued through the house to the bedroom where because they could hear snoring coming from the bedroom. Oh Lord! I am not kidding. So they find her on the bed snoring, having taken a fistful of sleeping pills. Not enough to die, but just Mm. enough to be, like, very sleepy. So they carried her out onto the back lawn, and they throw her out there. And then they go on to talk a whole lot about how her house is full of bones and taxidermy, but, like, that doesn't mean anything. (laughs) It's okay, Holly. We we know you're okay. You're not going to Lots of taxidermy people are lovely humans. Right. Not taxidermied people. People who collect taxidermy. If you have a taxidermied person, you are probably a little scary. (laughs) But (laughs) they are lovely. Like the whole ass person? (laughs) You just have like a piece of them. That's fine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm not here to insult anyone's collection. I love all of you weirdos. So they, they then take her into the police station, obviously. And she's very groggy and mumbling. And Mm -hmm. she denies that she remembers anything. She's like, I don't remember doing anything. I remember nothing. It was my Ambien. <laughs> I also love Ambien. Oh, no. Am I a murderer? Not yet. <gasps> Not yet. <laughs> That's right. I don't love Ambien. I need Ambien because I'm terrible <laughs> at sleeping. I, You guys, it's been a long day. It's okay. I thought a dingo and a kangaroo were the same thing, yeah, I think. Yeah, you did. You thought a kangaroo ate a baby. <laughs> I, I mean, should the title of this be A Kangaroo Ate My Baby? <laughs> I don't think so. (laughs) Anyway, police go on to discover through the autopsy that what had happened was she first stabbed John Price 37 times Uh before skinning him alive in one sheet and dismembering him like a cow. 37? 37 times. (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) They also discover through receipts and bank footage that she had left after doing these things for a little bit, Mm -hmm. went to the bank. In Musselbrook, I believe, which was the name of town. I'm sorry, I, I don't have it written down. She drove to the neighboring town, took his card, and took out $1,000 from Pricey's bank account. No one ever found what happened to this $1,000. She didn't buy anything. She didn't spend it. They speculate that she gave it to someone as like, well, here, if I go, here's your money. <laughs> I, I don't know, because there's no other excuse. Right. Where did it yeah, go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then she returned her own personal car to her house. She parked it in the backyard so that... Again, she told one of her children that they would get the car. This way they get the car because everything is on her terms. And then she went back to Pricey's house, took all her sleeping pills, and went to sleep. Now, I've watched some of her interview with the lead detective. 
it is very difficult to watch because she's very casual. And the whole time she says she remembers nothing. And the officer's like, do you remember going to Pricey's house? She's like, faintly, super cash about the whole thing. Eventually, by the end of the interview, they threw a lot of working because she's trying to say, like, he was so abusive. He hurt me. So I don't know what happened. I just blacked out. Eventually, they got her to admit that she probably did kill him. Like, she was the one who did it. She was just trying to navigate the situation so it looked like there was a reason, although it didn't hold up with anybody. And so she was put up on court in trial, and they they list her when they talk about her behavior in court it's so strange because they say she sits in the seat in court right in the stands and she just faces forward and focuses on nothing she doesn't look at any people who testify she won't look at any evidence she won't look at her lawyer or the judge or anybody until she wants a recess and then she has a giant screaming temper tantrum or she just screams and twitches and like thrashes around like she's having a mental breakdown and they have to recess and she gets a break that's the only time she makes any reaction. And then she's brought back to court behaving the same weird way. Hmm. Because, again, she's manipulating this situation. Yeah. She always has to be in charge and have an upper hand. But the judge saw through this, and he gave her life, the rest of her natural life in prison without parole. And that's the first woman in Australia's history to get that sentence. Oh. Yeah. Well, good for her. Breaking records. I know. Killing it. The judge also said that after her trial, he couldn't eat meat for three months. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you see, there wasn't just photographs of this. When the police went in through the house, there was video. Mm -hmm. So the jury and anybody in that courtroom had to sit there and see, like, active video of all of that stuff. Yeah, This guy's head, the whole nine yards. Catherine did attempt an appeal. Do you want to know on what grounds? Yes, please. She said the punishment she received didn't fit her crime. Oh, and the Tell judge was more. like, you are full of shit. Yes, it did. Goodbye. They, like, didn't they didn't give that any credence, and they just kind of sent her back to jail, where she remains to this day. That is the sort of tale of Catherine Knight. Wow. Mm-hmm. Do you know— I'm going to ask a gross question. I can't wait. Bring it on. What was the part of the body that she cooked? I think it was— most likely part of his, like, leg and buttocks because that's – okay, now I'm going to sound like a double psychopath with all my taxidermy and my Ambien. Mm -hmm. um, because in my experience when reading about cannibals, which I clearly have done this week and I read about them for my What the Friday and we've covered other cannibals before, that's the part that's most like a steak. That's like the part of a human body that you would eat. Mm -hmm. It's like dense and muscular. So right. I'm assuming it was that, and and because his torso remained, but his legs and arms were missing. Right. So if I had to say anything, I would say it was like thighs. Okay. But you don't know. They didn't say. No, they don't say for sure. They, I just know that his torso was left. Yeah. And his head that she had boiled, and I guess it was going to be like the centerpiece or something. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. So afterwards, okay. we did hear from, in documentaries and such, from an array of psychiatrists all of whom stated that she was as sane as you or I. She was not insane. They, there's too much planning to everything she did. Everything she did, going all the way back to the incidents with David Number One's mother and Melissa as a baby, were clearly planned out as a ploy for a result. She mm -hmm. wanted attention. She wanted David to come back. She wanted, she stabbed Pricey for revenge. She killed the dingo because she wanted that Saunders's 
attention and revenge. Everything had an end game. So they said, no, no, all of this was consciously done. They don't deny that she had a personality disorder, which some people will associate with um, sociopathy. They say, mm-hmm. like, um, antisocial personality disorder. I, I don't have a lot of this written down this week. Is kind of the disorder of sociopaths. Okay. And so you would lack empathy, and that would mean she just didn't, I mean, killing people was nothing to her. It didn't, which which seems to me to be very clear from the way she treated animals. Mm-hmm. You can take an indication. Like, if a person's shitty to animals, they're probably not great. Right. That's, I mean, that is the number one thing we learn in this podcast. In this life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's what psychiatrists would say about her. You know, she did have a rough childhood. She went through some stuff, which which could have easily caused what her problems were. They could have just been with her always. Mm-hmm. But it she didn't have the grounds for an insanity defense. Okay. To be in, insane, like, because we've you talked about this and so have I, you have to not know what you were doing or know that it was wrong. She had every intention to do what she did, and she knew that it was wrong. She just mm-hmm. didn't care. There's a difference. Right. Yeah, she's just, uh, she's one of those cases where we're like, they're evil. Mm-hmm. They're just an evil person. <laughs> Mad or bad. Yeah. I think this one's bad. And that's what every psychiatrist and judge and detective had to say about her. They were all like, she's just inherently not a good person. And if she were to ever be let out, she would do this again. She has never once expressed remorse. She has never apologized. She has never said anything in defense of herself. She's also never explained why she did it or exactly how she did it. Mm. She just, once she was in jail, she locked it up. Her sister went to visit her one time, and Catherine said, don't come and visit me again. I'm where I belong. I'm safe here. Weird. And her sister said, good enough, Mm. and never saw her again. Well, I mean, she said why why she did it. She a, gave an excuse. Yeah. She didn't say exactly why. Yeah. Well, he didn't marry her. Yeah. So you got to try and feed him to his children in a, like, weird Titus Andronicus type situation. Yeah. Got That's it. how you teach your children about... Shakespeare? Yes. Great. And marriage. She couldn't read, though, so definitely didn't read that one. <laughs> no. It's one of the denser Shakespeare. That's probably... She probably misunderstood yeah. It happens. Right. She was like, you know what would be better for you guys than a dad? A pot roast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. The vegetable medley did include, like, zucchini and pumpkin and stuff, in case oh, you were wondering. I was. I actually was. I know I you were. to know what it looked like. Yeah, it was it, nice. It, it, was looked, like- it looked exactly like she cooked. She, like, stewed it, like, slow cooked. Uh-huh. So it, look, it does look like pot roast and vegetables. Okay. Oh, man. Can you imagine those kids ate it? That would have been terrible. Thankfully, they didn't. You think, you think they would come in and be like, oh, look, this inintelligible note that says we were wrapped by and our dad. there's blood everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Saturated in blood. Yeah. His skin is hanging on a nail over the front door. She's like, okay, kids, I brought a cow in, and it got a little messy. It's shaped like a person. Please ignore that. Shh, shh, shh. <laughs> it's fine. It's just a random head. It's not your dad. <laughs> your dad's at work. It's fine. How was your sleepover? Was it good? Yeah. Here's some pot roast. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how she, I mean, she obviously didn't think she was going to, well, no, no she didn't she think took, she was going to get away with it. She did a little, well, she, yeah. She but, took pills to say like she was distressed and tried to kill herself, but she didn't take enough pills to kill herself. She's just sleeping. I think she was she, snoring. <laughs> she was snoring. Whew. Well, that was a fun one. What a ride. Yeah. <laughs> 
what a ride we just went on. Toast? Toast. Oh, no. <laughs> to, oh, I know. I know exactly who to toast. Do you know who I'm going to toast? You don't have a guess? Leslie is getting glasses because I forgot them <laughs> and we don't have a clinking sound. I'm going to toast. Old Ted, who oh, saved the day. Old Ted. To old Ted. Yay. Yeah, I don't know. That's it. He's the only <laughs> one. <laughs> Forget everybody else. Joy. <laughs> if that is your real name. Yeah. Oh, and also original David's mom, who was like, she was a disturbed woman. <laughs> wow. Yeah, was oh. she? I know. That's a lot. Do we have anybody else this week? We do. Um, I think we got one new patron today. We did. Shelby Shreves. Shelby. Cheers, Shelby. We love you. She is a best fiend forever. Ooh. We double love you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Best fiend forever. Well, enjoy some perks coming up this month. Hey, hey, hey. Woo. <laughs> By perks, we mean hanging out with us over a computer. Yeah, it's just more us. Yeah. I mean, that's a perk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if we confused a good life with sex 10 times a day... We would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. I have a scene in the boning room today.